What did you have for breakfast today? I had granola <laughs> with milk, <laughs> and then I rushed to the airport. <laughs> is is that the uh, the gold standard granola and milk? Uh, no. Uh, well, maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this morning I was kind of busy, so I had to get Just up, whack it together. And yeah, go. exactly. podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. Welcome to UNCOMMON, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name is Jordan Michaelides, and I'm your host. In this episode, I have for you Adam Nee. Adam is a geopolitical researcher. He's also a visiting fellow in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre, which is part of the Australian National University. His main areas of interest is related to China's foreign and security policy. With Adam's insight to China and the Communist Party seeing him appear on Channel 9 60 Minutes and talks on panels that include the Lowy Institute. The rise of China has come to the fore in many Australian minds. It's definitely a hot topic with the recent developments in the South China Sea for Australia, the US and their allies. Adam appeared on our screens in an interview for 60 Minutes discussing the recent play by China to create a naval base in Vanuatu. Adam holds a fascinating background and curious insight into one of the most important topics, in my opinion, for the future of Australia, our place in Asia. This episode covers a decent amount, giving you more of the nuts and bolts on this topic, including what a geopolitical researcher actually does and where the focus on China development, uh, on China developed, (laughs) my mumbling, Uh, geopolitics in general, so what it actually is, Australian geopolitics and our relations relations with the US and China, the South China Sea and Vanuatu, so what those topics actually are, the military and future foreign policy, China's geopolitics and particularly its influence on Australia and strategy, and then Hong Kong under Chinese rule. I think this is a very, very fascinating episode. I'm going to give the caveat that a lot of this commentary comes on the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and not the Chinese people and the Chinese diaspora. That's, I think, something that's very much confused a lot of the time when we get into the weeds of this topic. It's very fascinating. We cover war, geopolitics, and politics in general. So, If you have a friend that likes this sort of thing in general, do consider sharing this with them. Or if you like this and you want to check out more, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app. That'll definitely help us 
grow our audience. If you like this episode, there are more. Uh, check out my chat with Jeff Kennett, very similar, the former Victorian Premier, episode 59, where we covered his life, politics, and career afterwards. If you want the show notes for any episode or this one in particular, just head to neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash podcast. But as I say, each week, thank you so much for listening, our regulars for coming back, our newbies for giving us a shot. I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Adam Nee. Adam, thank you for joining me on what seems to have been a very quick and sudden uh, trip down to now sunny Melbourne. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, it's good to be here. <laughs> um, look, first thing um, I have to ask you, and I don't know if it's just the quality of the image that I was seeing is... Um, did you used to have uh, long, luscious locks, or am I yeah, just saying? Yeah, I had very long hair. In fact, so my hair was down to my lower back. Oh my god, really? Yeah, wow, okay. which which was a shock when I reported to uh, my army reserves unit the first time I went. <laughs> to the shock of a room of guys staring at me. So what happened with that? Was it chopped off? It was. It was quickly rectified when uh, <laughs> when the captain pulled me aside and said, "Mate, you've got to." get that <laughs> you've got to get it sorted, <laughs> get sorted yeah um what do they give you short back and sides or just a nice appropriate bowl cut or something else uh not bold but yeah fairly short okay yeah yeah i was just thinking um that would have taken a long time to grow that hair yeah absolutely <laughs> so uh, i guess throughout nearly uh all of my uh, adult life i've had between long hair and short hair like so i would grow it long and then shave it all off and then really? grow okay. it on again. Jeez. It's like the seasons. Yeah, I wish I could do it. I just, um, I don't know, long hair just does not suit me at all. Um, one of the things I noticed as well when I was um, researching your background online, um, your information is, is that there's a very scant amount of information. I was just curious as to why that is. Have you purposely made that decision to keep as little information off the internet as possible? Oh, not at all. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm not sure how much information well, like, put, is available you know, on like the internet. Most guests you're able to find like Facebook pages, like immediately, right. and all this other stuff. But I was just curious, you know, someone who works in the space of sort of geopolitics, foreign relations—is there an area or? You know, a time where you thought, oh, I really don't want to have much of a, apart from your academic viewpoint, you know, right. Twitter and, and um, profile on A&U, you know, do you want to just keep a low-key profile on the internet? Right. I'm not a super big user of uh, social media, <laughs> yeah. so perhaps that's why. That's why. Yeah. I thought as much. Yeah. we've. I mean, we've had a lot of people who, previous people who've worked in the security space and I noticed politicians as well. They always, always have like a very low-key, private, you know, social media aspect right. to their life. Right. Um, probably a wise decision, I'd say. Yeah. Well. Um, what's the earliest memory of your childhood? So, I think it was when I was three years old or younger when my dad was um, having a party. Um, okay. And uh, I was helping him carry bottles of beer. Okay. But I decided to run really fast and uh, I dropped two bottles of beer and then fell over. <laughs> and uh, I had glass embedded in my 
oh, right wow. hand. And then uh, he and his friends had to take me to hospital. And get it removed. And get it removed, yeah. I was bleeding as well, so that was... Really? Uh, and do you have any particular lessons that you hold with you today from either of your parents that, you know, maybe have said directly or just something that you watched indirectly? Like a principle or a life lesson of some kind? Yeah, don't hold two bottles of beer and run really fast <laughs> and fall over. <laughs> I like that. Really good. I like that. Yeah, it's um, that'll definitely teach you those sort of things. Um, I've, I think I remember when I was a kid, um, my parents, they get like this, they got this little bit of, um, sort of an area between like the gravel driveway and the house, right? like covered in sort of like a cement type, not cement, but like a sort of, sort of like a cement mixture to cover up like a gap or something like that. Yep. And, um, yeah, I, for some silly reason, just went and got like these wooden pieces of, of wood that were cut in different shapes. And I thought I'd like, cause I'd been at play, play school or preschool, you know, putting it in uh, like Play-Doh and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, this is like Play-Doh. I'll just put the, the shapes of the wood in that and make all these shapes. Well, I'm sure it made a lot of sense <laughs> back then. My um, my mum was not happy at right. all. She'd probably be laughing listening to this now. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those things, those sort of early lessons as a kid um, will definitely stick with you. Absolutely. Um, when you fly down to Melbourne... And you're sitting next to someone and they ask, what do you do? How do you explain it? Yeah, it's a little bit of a hard one because uh, I will probably explain it as uh, uh, I work at a university and I um, do research on international politics. Okay. Uh, and if they ask, you know, what aspects, then I will say, uh, you know, I focus on China. Okay. And uh, have you ever had anyone really delve deep into that when you met them? Absolutely. So often I I meet people randomly, and when I say uh, I work on international politics, uh, focusing on China, then they have all kinds of questions, opinions, prejudices, understandings, experiences. So it's always interesting to talk to randoms about um, about China. And what's like the most common question that they ask? Uh, I think one of the common themes is uh, people are really surprised by aspects of China, whether that be by, um, I guess surprise is not the right word, but people are certainly impressed by um, certain aspects of China's, say, size or population or culture depth, uh, history or the speed of its growth or its military power. So, was it um, never anything like, you know, the first immediate question is like, uh, are they going to invade us or anything like that? Oh, I've had a couple of these <laughs> as well um, <laughs> about the Communist Party and about um, China's um, more assertive foreign policy on the international stage. So, certainly both sides. Both sides, yeah. We'll get into that later on. I think one of the key distinctions there is the difference between the Chinese government and the Chinese people yeah, absolutely. because uh, you, I mean I've worked with a lot of different Chinese particularly in the fintech space the things that you hear that come from the government the language they use would never be what you'd expect from a middle class Chinese like they're just like you you know they're just an ordinary person and that's the most I, th- I guess that's been the most surprising thing in my own 
investigation of China. Obviously, we spoke about before this, I've been really interested in Chinese tech companies. Yep. And the more and more you learn about China, it's sort of, it's weird how you've gotten like a confirmation bias through Western media. Like it's, it's makes it out to be this big um, foreboding authoritarian sort of state, which it, it is in many different ways, but the way that people actually live their lives can be seen as quite normal to, Absolutely, to how yeah. we live our lives. So that, that's been an interesting thing for me, I think, in the last 12 months. Um, I went through, obviously, your LinkedIn and, and you initially completed your undergrad in commerce at UNSW. Right. Um, and then you did your master's, I think, in international law, but I don't know if you flipped to dipl- diplomacy or did both at yeah, ANU. Yes, so I, did, I did both you at did the both. ANU. Okay. What was sort of the catalyst that moved you towards diplomacy and, say, geopolitics? Right. So, I had finished my bachelor's in commerce, okay. uh, majoring uh, finance and business law at the UNSW, and uh, I really didn't like it. I really didn't <laughs> like uh, the stuff that I was studying. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, I did commerce too, and you, right. <laughs> you, you come out of that and you're like, what have I actually done? Well, exactly. <laughs> what have I actually done? So, um, I guess the best decision of my life was um, a week after I finished uh, I finished uni, finished my last course, um, I bought a one-way ticket to go travel. Okay. Yeah. And uh, where so, where did you go traveling? So uh, the first stop was Bali. Okay. Um, and how Australian of you? Well, I mean, I didn't I didn't know anything about Bali at that point, but it was it was kind of close, and it was um, it was cheap to get to. So I thought, why not? Yeah. So, yeah. So it was a one-way ticket there, um, and from there I spent um, a couple of years actually traveling. Okay. Back, backpacking a few years yeah wow. that's okay. right so backpacking uh, mostly in Asia I spent quite a bit of time in Southeast Asia in India okay. uh, and a lot of time in China um, right. back, backpacking around and so do you feel that was sort of the the moment that travel was sort of the thing that catalyzed your idea of being involved in this area or was there you know a book or a story or a particular moment at all where you thought this is what this is the area that I like working in. I think it was the cumulative experience of traveling, encountering different cultures, and okay. being uh, situations that were surprising, sometimes difficult, but often rewarding. Yeah, and um, connecting with a lot of different people every day. Okay, some of which, um, some which, some of which you can't speak their language. Yeah, uh, so I think. These traveling experiences made me really actually want to understand more yeah. about the world. And did you think that you were going to focus on geopolitics or did you think, oh, I'm, I just want to be a diplomat at some point? Yeah, I absolutely had the goal of becoming an Australian diplomat. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Absolutely. So, okay, so you studied geopolitics. Yeah, so I studied, you studied um, international diplomacy? law and yeah. diplomacy, yeah. And so, where did the whole speci- specialization to China? Like, obviously, we spoke before, and you said you grew up in mainland China until you're about ten. That's right. Um, yeah. Now, people could assume and go, "Oh, that that makes so much sense. You will focus on that area." But why why focus on geopolitics and say China and not Southeast Asia or something like that? Yeah. So, obviously, one aspect is quite personal. 
I, I grew up in China and I grew up in China at a fairly special time. So in the 80s when China was opening up and its economy uh, was starting to boom um, and there was a lot of a lot of changes where I grew up in, in Shanghai where old neighborhoods were demolished to make space for higher buildings uh, yeah, yeah. yes so that was that was a very uh strange experience for me and something that i always remember playing in these ruins so if you imagine like you know a stalingrad with just uh de- with a whole lot of demol neighborhoods of demolished buildings and kids playing in it climbing onto the buildings oh, yeah. yeah and i remember one of the most um powerful imageries and that's still with me today is when I must have been about eight or seven and me and my friends were playing uh, in the ruins of old neighborhood with Hulk of the building and burnt out wood and etc. Really? Uh, months of um, bricks and tangled steel and lines and it started to rain and it was smoky and eerie and uh, it, it always stayed with me. Really, I'd, I'd love to see like a photo of that image and see what it was like. Yeah. Because Shanghai is, I mean, I don't think a lot of people appreciate this, is how much Shanghai has changed in the last 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. From the old neighborhoods getting demolished to two or three stories building getting built and then they would in turn a few years be demolished again and higher buildings will rise. Yeah three, four times until today where uh, the buildings are 100, 200 levels. Yeah, and most... Giant skyscrapers. Most suburbs are... You know, I had um, a friend of mine just come back. He's um, an Australian-born Chinese gentleman and he did a lot of consulting in Shanghai for about three years and he was just saying... I think he was in the, like, the expat international, like, where a lot of Japanese expats live. I can't remember the suburb, but he was just showing me, and it is amazing. Like, Shanghai is just full of high-rise buildings that go forever and ever. Yeah, exactly. Um, And you've got, like, particularly when you have these apartments, you've got sort of high-rises and then, like, parks just that sit in the middle for, like, a form of greenery. Because Mm. if you look at a map of Shanghai, there's not many... No. There's not many parks at all. Not at all. Um, and so, yeah, I, can, I would love to have seen that photo because, um, you know, like I said, Shanghai is a very, very different city today. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, you, you got into this area. You've, you've started working and researching at ANU. So, do you say that you're a researcher in geopolitics or foreign relations or something else entirely? I'll simply say China okay. uh, because that's the area that I focus in and that's the area that I'm most passionate about okay. in China and it's um, it's foreign security policy, it's international strategy yeah. and how it uses its power on, yeah. on the international stage. Okay. And in terms of what we can, you know, some of the lessons that Australia can draw and issues that Australia should be aware of. And yeah, that that to me is probably the biggest thing. Some people may not understand uh, topics or they may not understand this area. I define it, you know, as I said before, broadly as geopolitics. So that's sort of become this catch-all phrase for... Um, like initially it was the study of geography on politics and international relations, but it's basically become a basket of ideas around international political relations 
do you think that's a correct statement? Yeah, I mean, I think I think geopolitics is uh, about how uh, geographic factors influence uh, relations between states and other political actors, including international institutions, civil organisations, etc. So I guess it's a lens through which to see contemporary international uh, problems and issues. Yeah. So... Uh, issues from terrorism and conflict and competition between states and the management of global commons, they can all be seen from a geopolitical point of view. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and like we were saying before we were recording, people, would ne- like as an example, they'll never understand why Australia chooses to go to Iraq and Afghanistan and it was a waste of money and so forth, but there are underpinnings behind that from a geopolitical lens which basically explain that away i'm curious then when it comes to geopolitical analysis um what are sort of the general tools that people can look at this um i mean i feel like it's a hard thing to define because i haven't been able to build up any principles myself but i'm just curious as to you as someone who say focuses on china like what are the particular areas or tools that you look at when performing your analysis. Yeah, so I think there's two levels. On a higher level, on the international level, um, scholars often use theories to, um, so theories basically lenses to see the world through. Right. And, uh, you know, all of these theories are useful in sometimes and they add to our understanding, but obviously they're incomplete yeah. and imperfect. Yeah. So the main ones being um, realism, liberalism and constructivism and just in a nutshell, realism is about power. Liberalism is about cooperation and preferences uh, and constructivism is about our identity and values and okay. how we imagine the world to be. Okay. So, Interesting. Yeah, so these are the fairly dominant and basic theories that scholars use uh at a domestic level there's you know um you you can use tools of political science of analyzing institutions and actors and political systems and economic factors and ethnicity and a whole range of other um elements yes societal culture historical elements to understand uh, a, a society a polity and how they um act on 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 the international stage so i guess with the more like with a lot of the more liberal sciences it's it's sort of there's no because when i was looking say through wikipedia there's no one guaranteed way like or provable way and i guess this is like all politics there's no real provable way of this is how you analyze this situation it's you know what is the country their population their geography um, other elements of culture and how does that how can we then see how they interact with the world around them yeah so that goes to the issue of uh, a positivist view of the world in that you know you've got the uh, the physical sciences so if I kick the ball in one way then um, we, we know we know the rules of uh, laws of gravity and uh, thermodynamics or what have you that yeah. can um, so with all that information we'll be able to know where the ball lands mm. whereas you know for some people that would be the same in the social world okay but other people see that as quite uh, improbable in the social world given how it's fairly different from the physical world interesting so maybe we'll cover a bit on Australian geopolitics. So 
I, what I was going to do to save us a lot of time today was sort of condense my own thoughts on Australian geopolitics yep, and see sure. where, where, like, what are the mistakes that I've made essentially. So from I guess from my own research, I've been able to gather a a reasonable point of view. I think um, essentially Australia is a middle power, so a middle power island nation that has a small population that is wealth, quite wealthy per capita, let's say. Um, obviously situated in South Southern Asia or Southeast Asia with access to both Pacific and Indian Oceans. And then we have this buffer zone with Indonesia, PNG and the Solomon Islands. So based on these sort of generalized factors, and I could go in depth into a lot of other things, obviously, but to me that says we depend obviously on local and global maritime trade because we're a small population as well we often extract security guarantees typically with the world's naval superpower and then obviously we want to ensure regional st- stability so um, particularly in Indonesia pirating and so forth and then I think this has become a new thing in Australia's view of itself but the diversification, and I know this from previously working in Ibis World, talking about the what makes up the Australian economy, but particularly diversification of trading partners and reducing dependency on the export markets because that in and of itself becomes a really weak point for our nation. Um, and so the key element to that is obviously historically people will know, people will think we were partners with Britain simply because they were the old colonial masters, but I think it's more to do with the fact that they were the naval superpower. And that was sort of shattered in 1940, I think, 41, when Singapore fell to the Japanese. And then we completely, by just necessity, flipped to the Americans. And um, ever since then, we've sort of relied on them to underwrite our security, and in return, we give them personnel, uh, materials, and guarantees of support, essentially. So, on that basis, I mean, obviously, I've probably missed a lot there. Um, where have I gone wrong? Right. I think you've covered like a lot of the big points. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think uh, I think one of the obvious thing is that Australia is continental size, so striding both the Pacific yeah, and the yeah. Indian Ocean, so has quite a lot of uh, security interests, uh, but at the same time, it has a small population. Uh, it. It very much depends on uh, trading with other nations. Mm. So uh, it's you know, Australia's interest, obviously, to have a, a stable international economic environment uh, and rules mm. and free um, and free flow of trade. Australia's always relied on um, strong allies. So as you were saying, um, Britain before and during World, World War Two until yeah. World War Two, and then the United States until this point. So the other thing that um, I think is important to point out is uh, Australia is geographically very close to uh, Asia. Asia is our neighborhood. Yeah. And yet a, a lot of our, we draw a lot of culture from uh, European culture. Um, you mentioned diversification of trade. Um, I think that is highly important um, at the moment. Australia has been fairly dependent on China for its um, export earnings through uh, minerals and increasingly services. Yeah. So yeah. education um, and 
tourism. Big, big time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So a lot of Chinese money um, is coming to Australia. Yeah. So those, I guess, are the key elements. What are the, I guess, what are the tools? I don't know if you'd call it tools or what are the levers that Australia can pull geopolitically? What are the things that are our positives that we use really well externally? Like, for example, people talk about us as a middle power. Um, do we have sway as sort of like a, a neutral body, so to speak? Or, you know, the fact that we, we're sort of like a, a free trade nation, does that mean we can sort of act as an intermediary of some kind? I'm just curious as to like, what are the things that we have at our disposal or are we simply like the the little child of America or China? Yeah, so I think Australia has quite a um, quite a good reputation on the international stage. Certainly not as, uh, it may not be as good as some of the uh, Scandinavian countries, for example. Um, Interesting. What, what do you mean by that? Okay, so uh, some of the Scandinavian countries uh, are quite uh, reputable on the international stage. For example, Norway as um, on, on as brokers in, in, in conflicts, for example. Uh, right, okay. so, right. And a part of that stem from the fact that they're small, hmm. um, but also they have um, developed political systems themselves and being able to... It's some. It's it's basically reputational capital that these countries have built up over a long time. So, Australia has quite a good reputation, but um, certainly it's not like you know Norway or you know Sweden. India. Yeah, still quite good reputation, so that can be used to our advantage. However, um, our closeness with the United States sometimes goes against us because we're not seeing as an honest broker. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to say between United States and China, for example, then it's fairly obvious that um, currently where the um, Australian biased, political yeah. elite sit, mm. and you know I'm not saying there's no good reason for that, and simply pointing out pointing out that in the perception of others, um, Australia is very much aligned with the United States. So, for example, Australia's gone um, to basically every war that. Um, the United States have fought since World War Two. It's it's the only country that has done that. Yeah, and you know there are good arguments as to why uh, it is important that we do that, but obviously it uh, it brings about a certain perception. Yeah, well, I guess one of the the things on that is that unfortunately, because of the st- the stature of the nation, because like you said, it's a continent. Um, and the population is so small, so we can't really protect it on our own. We have, and the fact that we rely as an island nation on global trade, we will always side with that naval superpower and it, it becomes, well, I guess it's the easy route to just do that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. See, when Britain was dominant in, in the region, then... Uh, it was fine. It, it was fine when America is the dominant power in the region, when nobody challenged American power in the Asia-Pacific, then that was fine as well. But I think today Australia is at a cusp of a very different reality where uh, increasingly uh, China is challenging American power in our region. Right. Uh, and I think over the next few decades, we'll see that China displace the United States as uh, the most powerful player 
in the region. So yeah. um, in that sense, Australia would enter uncharted waters. Um, and how do we... What do we do? Exactly. What do we do in a situation where uh, we have, you know, the biggest trading partner uh, in, in, in China and our security guarantor in the United States, which is increasingly um, seeding leadership. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've mentioned on the cusp of this point in time a few times and I can feel it's there. Like a good example is... Um, Obviously, China's movement into the South China Sea and how basically people have really given up because there's because they've incrementally done it, as you wrote before. There's no way of stopping it. And so, I wonder now as we're on this cusp, what is the mood in Canberra? And that may be from, you know, colleagues that you work with in the industry to politicians. Are they aware of this or... Are they blatantly unaware? Absolutely. I think the majority of them understand, uh, well, that's the sense I get at least, that we are on the cusp of uncharted waters, or in fact, we're already we're already there mm-hmm. in the uncharted waters, and that Australia needs to um, be highly vigilant and adaptable. Okay. So it, n- no longer can we rely on um, American giant protecting us. Um, as as they have in the last you know, 50, 60 years, the geopolitical reality has vastly changed and potentially not to our favour because of the possibilities for escalating conflict and competition. Yeah. I want to then talk about Australia's present and future, I guess. Um, as we said, we're sort of in this odd area where the Microsoft, uh, the Microsoft, the, the microscope, sorry, is being applied to our over-reliance on the US. Um, I think the two recent events are definitely, it was the South China Sea was, people were sort of, oh, you know, the South China Sea, but it's sort of too far away to really materialize in their head. But that, I think Vanuatu in particular, and that 60 minutes um, piece, which you were on as well, really like really got it going for a lot of people, sort of really made the general populace realise. And I know I've seen people like, I think Paul Keating was a very interesting and a very good prime minister, but he's carried on, I think, a bit too much about the pivoting towards Asia without really a sound understanding of why people push back against China. Yeah, sure. Um, What's sort of your view on what we have in store? And I guess, what do you think is the smartest decision over the next 20 years for Australia? Yeah, that's a big question <laughs> yeah. and I'm not sure I have the answers <laughs> to that. Uh, so, uh, first of all, like you mentioned about South China Sea, which is a huge potential flashpoint in our region. Mm. And I guess the thing that people don't realize is that it's not too far from us. Yeah. In fact, a lot of our trade passed through the South China Sea, but even more importantly than that, it's uh, it foreshadows the future. It highlights the uh, will and capability of uh, China mm-hmm. to uh, push forward for its interests, even if it's at a disadvantage, even if it disadvantages other uh, countries. In this, in this case, weaker claimants in the South China Sea. Yeah. And it is willing to use force 
yeah to or the threat of force to do that so if that's the case then what would happen two three decades down the track when and the relative power have further shifted in china's favor yeah maybe just before because i want to know what you would be doing if you were in charge of strategy which is a question i always like to people but um the south china sea so i think maybe we'll just cover on that quickly again sort of briefly covering it to save us time essentially it's the sea that is surrounded by vietnam thailand malaysia philippines taiwan for those listening um almost all of our trade within asia would pass through there um i think something like 21 percent of the world's global trade passes yeah, through so there. a very big number um and obviously what's happened is tensions have risen because China has laid claim to these coral islands that they've converted into actual islands with cement and, and so forth. And they've been really well done if you go have a look at them. Um, there were recent events where the ICC, the International Criminal Court, ruled against China to say that they did not have claim over all islands. They, of course, ignored it. And then they were recently disinvited to the, I think, the 2018 rim of the Pacific Exercises, which is a big event for most um, navies in the region. Why does China want to dominate in this way? Like, why, why go ahead in this way? Yeah, so I think that's a pretty, on one level, that's a pretty straight question, um, but there's some underlying complexity. So first of all, like I think China is getting more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the South China Sea um, is a claim that it believes that it um, has historical rights to, even though these historical rights are not uh, norms on the international law, are not accepted by the international community Mm. as a whole. Um, But China believes that, you know, nearly the entire South China Sea belongs to China. Mm -hmm. And uh, instead of... um, purely negotiating uh, it has adopted a strategy where it's changing facts on the ground so it's building islands it's uh, stationing ships there it's uh, carrying out uh, air and uh, maritime patrols in the area and it has worked very well for china because uh, no one's pushed back well no nobody nobody wants a war <laughs> nobody wants a war uh, with the potential for of escalating to uh, a nuclear conflict and Chinese actions have been incremental and they have a long-term concerted plan mm. to uh, reinforce their claim yeah so um, it's sometimes it's um, it's talked about as a salami tactic where you <laughs> slice the salami really thinly Right, so every time you slice the salami really thinly, it, it makes not that much difference to the to the to the salami left. But uh, over, over time, time, I think yeah. it makes a lot of a big difference. Yeah, to me, it sort of reminds me of um, I was listening to this podcast recently on Hardcore History, and they spoke about um, as Japan grew in power, how the 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 foreign policy methods they used for getting more land and power, and it started. In little ways at first, I mean, the the thing with this and what's been so smart by China is that they've done it incrementally. The Japanese were really unwise because they were very exacting and violent and um, they took large components of land at 
you know, one point in time, for example, Korea. Um, so, it's it's very interesting. It's sort of a similar thing because it's in the region, but it's just a, a different approach. Um, I guess you also spoke about consequences. I think you had an article for The Wire. Um, what do you think would have been appropriate consequences if if we could have done something about it, as opposed to this whole freedom of navigation expedition stuff? Yeah, so I guess it's quite hard to say, given that uh, as a government, um, Australia or the United States or whoever just have to ask what what is at stake. First of all, what are the interests at stake? Mm. What are the potential consequences of enforcing, say, uh, red lines? So what are they willing to do? What are they willing to risk? And these questions are complicated it goes to how you see the international situation and the hundreds of variables that goes into the cost and benefit of a strategic calculus Mm. so obviously nobody's suggesting that um we go to war with china or for the u.s to go to war with china because i think that's um that's just absolutely ridiculous at this um, at, at this point but there are certain things that we can do to make it more costly for China or any other power um, in the South China Sea, for that matter, uh, when they behave in a way contrary to uh, the the common interest or international law. So what would that be? Would be some examples? I mean, the, the lightest of which would be condom- international condemnation. Mm-hmm. Could you do financial sanctions, a realistic thing? Or does it hurt you too much as well? Well, exactly. That's what each country have to decide for themselves. Um, I mean, there are very, uh, you know, there's very real examples right now that um, that's that's relevant. For example, Xinjiang, where China, Chinese government is building, has built concentration camps and held, is holding um, hundreds and thousands of um, minority people in a condition that's really um that's yeah that's essentially like a you know, concentration camp um wow I yeah did not know about that exactly so that's um that that's happening right now in xinjiang um up hundreds of thousands if not one million people are held in these camps that are basically the relics of the the relics of world war Two. yeah so so that's interesting because you've shared a few things from there's a council in America. Um, congr- I can't remember if it's a Senate committee or Congressional Council. United they, States, yeah, um, on committee on China, yeah. Yeah, so it's sort of like a human like it's a human rights sort of watchdog of what's happening in. It's China. not a human rights watchdog, but it looks at what's what's happening in China. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's been quite critical of what the Chinese government doing is in Xinjiang, uh, in the west of China. So the reason I'm bringing up this is because you could make the same argument that certain um, economic sanctions should be placed on China or the responsible um, the responsible officials for violation of human rights. Right. So you could utilize that. Exactly, but uh, obviously it. Obviously, I think the whole thing is about the strategic calculus of what's more beneficial. Um, and at the end of the day, the the policymakers in Canberra perhaps so, just doesn't have the stomach for it. Yeah. Do you think that it's incredibly important? Yeah, I think it's 
I think it's incredibly important uh, for Australia to do what it can to uphold an international environment that's not a um, dog-eat-dog world, Mm. right? So that has certain rules, and the most basic of which is that you settle your disputes with um, via non-violent means instead of uh, coercion and intimidation. Yeah, it's it's, it's definitely like an interesting element of the Chinese government and how they go about those sort of things. Even if the uh, Australian government might not be happy with certain actions of China, then sometimes the cost of criticising it or doing something about it is just way too high. So they don't. So they just don't do it. Yeah. Um, Going back to my original thought on what would you do, if overnight the government decided we're going to double the military budget so that we can stop and this is a, an opinion I've had for a while because I look at a lot of other, a lot of other prominent nations that are still small countries and sort of are islands in a way, like Singapore, um, Israel in a way is an island. They're sort of there yep. on their own. They all have very high, very high military spend, but a lot of that is actually going into R and D and developing their own sort of military industrial economy around it. So my viewpoint is that, and it's not simply just for the fact of going to war, we should just be doubling that because we can create an economy around it and reduce the over-reliance on security partners in the long term. If you had that at your disposal, how would you go about, I guess, foreign policy objectives? So I think it's, I think it's, quite unrealistic for us to have that level of technical uh scientific you know military base to be able to defend ourselves against a great power yeah that's just not happening because of our small population because the size of our economy which is only a fraction of um of china's or the united states's yeah so uh there has to be some other way that Australia defends itself. So obviously, traditionally, we've allied with a great power, and perhaps we will in the future as well. Um, bandwagon again with China, I, I, I don't know. That is certainly a, a viable strategy. Um, another strategy would be to have a more independent defence policy, but that I think would involve a wholesale change of how we structure our forces. Mm. So right now, the... Um, the Australian Defence Force wouldn't be capable of fighting a war, a high-intensity conflict by itself without the Americans. Yeah. Yeah, um, there's there's absolutely no way. So if we want to defend ourselves or at least did have the capabilities to deter a great power from infringing on Australia's uh, either territory or vital strategic interests, then we're going to have to rethink how we develop our armed forces yeah i mean you've been probably thinking about this for a while what are sort of the gradual changes that could be made over the next few years in particular yeah so i mean one difficulty with making these policies is that uh these capabilities come come online over the long term yeah so from the point which you make a decision on what kind of capabilities you need and do your study and research and then build it and train etc it takes a very very long time so um, you just have to have a good understanding of where the international um, 
situation is going. Yeah. Like I, I, I think the trajectory of the region is quite clear, and that is the uh, continual rise of Chinese power. Um, obviously, it's not certain because there could be. Um, well, there could be like a financial crash. Exactly, there could be um, domestic issues in China um, and uh, regional economic crisis, for example, or a uh, a conflict, a flashpoint that's um, that starts an escalating conflict. So, um, absent of this, I think the trajectory is uh, quite clear that the United States will become increasingly weak, relatively weak. To China in the region, to a point where um, China will be able to exercise hegemonic power in our region. Mm. So at that point, then, what are the choices left to Australia? So there's. Well, what do we do? Is it literally we just have to go with China, or do we have to do something a bit left field, like build a coalition of some kind? That would be able to defend against China. Yeah, I mean or, that's one. You know, that's that that's one idea of building a coalition of um, like-minded states to uh, impose cost on China if it behaves in a way that's um, un- unacceptable and aggressive. Mm. Um, that's certainly possible, and that is in some ways happening with um, India, Japan, United States, Australia. Interesting, but of course, like each one of these countries, uh, the biggest trading partner is China, I believe. <laughs> so each of all, each one of them have a uh, intrinsic incentive in having good relations with China. Yeah, it's a difficult thing because I was thinking about what NATO represented in the in uh, in the region of Europe when Europe was the hotbed. Yep. Um, but the thing was, Russia wasn't the greatest trading partner of all European nations. It was America and the UK. Yes, exactly right. I think uh, the difference between today's situation and the situation during the Cold War is that during the Cold War, you had two divided camps, the East and the West, under two different ideologies. But today, um, the international economy is much more integrated. Everybody trades with everybody. um, And... You have competition at the same time as uh, cooperation. Mm. So, in even in the case of United States and China, uh, the United States has said very clearly that China is a strategic uh, competitor, and yet uh, their economies are very much uh, entwined with mm. each other. Yeah. Now, think about the rise of China itself, and going to what I was saying before, when we say China, we mean the Chinese government or China or Chinese government is what we mean. So the People's Republic of China is completely different to the people that exist within China and particularly the Chinese diaspora as well or diaspora, however you want to pronounce it. Um, That being said, there's clearly a rise of China and we're sort of seeing a procession that we saw on the mid 20th century with America overtaking England. Obviously, in both cases, they started as the economic power and then eventually moved to the naval power as well. Um, How similar do you see China's procession being? I.e., do they have to hit 
um, becoming a regional naval power and then what are the steps they have to make to become the world's superpower, et cetera, et cetera. So China is developing uh, obviously rapidly in, in terms of its uh, economy and I think for a um, long time its military power has been um, not commensurate to its economic and political increasing economic and political footprint around the world mm -hmm. so uh, one example is the Belt and Road Initiative which is a uh, massive massive um, uh, strategy by um, China to refashion the international economy international trade and commercial network uh, in such a way as to make China the center of that of yeah. that so middle kingdom yeah yeah and um that's china's uh one of china's biggest strategy at the moment and um which is interesting because it's it seems more eurasian focused as opposed to asian focused would that be right it has it has um elements um of maritime mm. um that goes to southeast asia and then into the into the pacific and oceania and a number of its um, routes go through uh, countries like Russia or the, the Central Asian stands, uh, uh, Pakistan as well. Yeah. Um, so um, it, it's a little bit like of a web emanating from China, exporting Chinese uh, products and labor, yeah. and also importantly, technological standards and influence. So it, it is certainly of the yeah, the highest the highest importance for the for the Chinese leadership. Yeah, I was watching a um, sort of a mini docker today about um, how China is well, not the government now, but private corporations like Huawei and so forth. They're all the biggest trading partners of Africa now. So all pretty much every nation, particularly the major ones within the middle that vote with them at the UN. Um, there's a long list as well. There's about 12 or 16 there. Um, their major trading partner now is all China and it's all flipped to China in the last 10 years, which has been fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, traditionally, you know, the European um, nations have been quite dominant in um, Africa because of historical and colonial reasons. Mm. Um, but increasingly, China is becoming the biggest trading and um, aid partner of African countries. Yeah, and um, a lot of the time they're exporting, um, I guess, labor because labor in China is becoming more and more expensive as the middle class rises and rises. Um, so that's been quite interesting. Um, I guess in a recent event, you spoke about certain aspects of China's geopolitics, and this was you and an entire panel for the Lowy Institute. Um, there were a few things raised like uh, debt traps and um, examples of things like Vanuatu. Uh, you spoke before about um, what was once called One Belt, One Road, but is the Belt and Road Initiative now. Um, in your own words, what is China's geopolitical strategy? What are sort of the key elements to it? I think the key element of it is to develop um, a region and increasingly a world with China at the center. So China as being the center of the global investment, trade network, the center of uh, the production chains of the world and increasingly uh, not at the level of uh, 
you know, making clothes, for example, but increasingly more high tech. Yeah. So China is investing a huge amounts of money into research, into events, um, technology, tra- potentially uh, transformative technologies such as quantum science and um, AI. AI well. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's it's strategy. It's international strategies about refreshing the international environment with China at the center. Um, and also to ensure that the regional and international environment is stable for it to continue to grow because it sees the current period as what's known as what what's the Chinese refer to as a strategic window. Okay. So a window of time where they uh, in some way are not uh, contained or harassed um, or competed too fiercely by other powers, uh, a period where they can grow. Uh, without paying, without diverting massive amounts of resources to defense and competition with other countries. Interesting. So what it wants to do is to have a stable environment regionally and globally in order to maximize uh, its growth. So that's why, because I've seen you share these People's Liberation Army videos and they're fascinating, the way that they use language and music and... um, the way that they make a video is so fascinating to watch. But there's a real emphasis on peace. They're always talking about peace. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think um, you know, that's that's always the rhetoric. That's, the, that's always <laughs> like the velvet glove that hides the iron fist, right? Yeah. So peace. Um, but of course, peace um, perhaps on, on, on their terms. Yeah. What, what concerns you most about the way that they approach their geopolitical strategy, I guess. My, my biggest concern is actually uh, the internal constitution of the Chinese, what I refer to, what, what many of us um, that China watches refer to as a party state because uh, in, in China there's um, not much distinction between the party on the one hand and the nation state so the government on the other hand mm. they're fused into one it's a one party led um leninist state and the biggest thing that worry me is the nature of the chinese state and how that how its repressive uh tendencies uh, manifest on the international stage yeah which is an interesting thing because i remember on that panel the the panel spoke about how that's a very anti-Chinese. If people understand Chinese history, the idea of laws, I'm pretty sure, was created within Confucian culture, if I'm not mistaken. So there's sort of elements of liberalism that are taken from Chinese culture and, and that was re-emphasized on that talk, which I found very interesting. I'd never thought of that before. But I, I can see what you mean, like that sort of anti-liberal not anti-liberal but they're they're against liberal tendencies like the ability to free associate yeah, and of course they of are speech and they are because the elite of the communist party wants to hold on to power and continue to benefit from um all the all the privileges and all the wing force from uh, economic growth and china's development so of course they have an interest in ensuring that um the Chinese political system is at status quo, it and on. it doesn't, and it doesn't change in a liberal direction into a democracy, um, as 
say Taiwan has mm. or some other you know Asian countries like Indonesia for example yeah we can sort of see that now with um Hong Kong Hong Kong has been very interesting exactly I mean I think uh, when Hong Kong was handed back to China it was there were uh, so, some people thought it could be basically uh, an example right an example of um, what the what the People's Republic could be mm. like rule of law um, and human rights um, or a degree of openness a high degree of openness um, but instead of um, instead of infecting China with these uh, values uh, right now what we see is the other way around where the Chinese government uh, is increasingly taking freedom away from the Hong Kong people and seeking to incorporate Hong Kong in the same political system. So it's no longer one country, two system. It's increasingly merging, uh, absorbing Hong Kong into its system. Yeah, and there's a very good... If you want to know why that's not a good thing um, and you want to learn a little bit more about sort of the day-to-day elements of that, there's a really good series um, by Vox. Um, I think it's called Borders. And they recently did a two-part series on Hong Kong and they spoke about um, the Umbrella um, Revolt or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think most people would remember this in Hong Kong when there was uh, protests around their ability to vote. Um, And particularly like little stores, if there's stores that are discovered that have material that's against the, the government, then what often happens is those people disappear and they wind up on state television apologizing for what they did and so forth. Yeah, it's certainly happened. Yeah. So it's it's very, very interesting and that sort of gives you an, a look into the day-to-day of how this coercion really can work and, and why, you know, someone like yourself and the others that were on that um, panel constantly re-emphasized that, these are the things that we don't want to have to deal with, particularly here. Um, yeah, exactly. So obviously, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese people in the Pe- People's Republic of China, are living under, you know, to be sure, they're living much better materialized. But at the same time, a lot of the rights that we take for granted, like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, in a lot of cases, freedom of association or political activities, uh, are severely hampered by um by the party state yeah before we get into some shorter faster questions as i realize we're starting to run out of time i'm curious as to i mean the thing it seems obvious but why do you think china wants to so influence australia on that panel you again uh for the lowy institute you spoke about it's been observed by a lot of people that australia is sort of like a lab or a testing ground for how they could apply this in Europe or the UK or America. Um, So obviously by sending students, buying assets through state entities or just simply flexing um, economic power in different ways. Why do you think they want to influence Australia in this way? Yes, so... And um, I I guess to that, what I think I'm assuming is, are we so unique? Like, is is this not happening to, say, Vietnam and Thailand and other ways? Yeah, just to go back to what you said about students, uh, most of them are just like you or me. Yeah, yeah. Um, Most of them are just... But they make it free and easy to come over here and study, is what I mean, I guess. 
sorry, what? The the government, the Chinese government, makes it free and they easy. don't make it free. Not free, but like you know, it's uh, it's not banned to go study in Australia. Oh, I see. What I mean. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. Um, yeah. So I think I think as you referred to earlier, there's a big difference between the Chinese people mm. uh, and the Chinese government, right? So when we say uh, influence. Uh, it's it's not a it's it's not the tourists or the students or in a lot of cases the individual investors, um, but the thing that we should be worried about are first of all covert operations, yeah, um, by the People's Republic on Australian soil, that of course the intelligence agencies uh, have to deal with, and then um, the overt. Uh, activities overt political activities of um the communist party and its affiliated organizations on australian soil because that could have um if we don't understand it and if we're not vigilant then it could have a detrimental impact on australia's national security social harmony um and other interests yeah what what are some of the more covert things that are happening that the general public may not be aware of I mean, I I don't um, obviously I don't work for You're not privy to yeah exactly so I don't know but I suspect from uh, media reports um, they uh, cyber espionage for example mm. the traditional uh, spying the political party donations seems to obviously with Sam Dasiari being a big thing of late yeah so that's been quite obviously quite big in the media. Um, but the complexity there is, of course... Um, it's quite nuanced. Yeah, so, you know, if you... Um, what if you have a Chi- Australian-Chinese businessman? Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're ethnically uh, Chinese or have Chinese background, but they're Australian citizens mm. and they're, um, they're somehow linked in some yeah. way to the so how do you substantiate these links and how do you uh understand the vectors of these influence yeah so it's just so un, un, unclear on the one hand you don't want to accuse somebody just simply because, because they're, chinese, they're, yeah. they're chinese obviously not um but on the other hand if they have say strong links to the communist party uh then uh, i think we should questions need to be asked questions needs to be asked exactly yeah. Um, there is so much here that I want to ask you. We still didn't really get to talk about Vanuatu, but I think um, if people really want to learn more about Vanuatu, and I think this is one of the things through the media that, that has really kicked the media up and, and I guess the general populace. Um, there's a really good 60 minutes, I guess, mini doco. Um, I think it's around 40 minutes you were interviewed on it. There's also an, uh, an extended excerpt on the website as well. We'll, we'll link that to everyone. Um, I'm curious is that, you know, if there's someone that's listening that is intrigued about geopolitics and, and getting into foreign policy or diplomacy, um, where can they, and particularly they, they want to look at this focus on China, maybe they're just, you know, like yourself, interested purely in China. Um, how would they start to approach this of, of building their interests? Are there particular resources? Are there websites that they should be looking at i note that you share a lot of info on your twitter feed um a lot of different articles and so forth i'm just curious as to where that person would first start to dig around 
Yeah, I think if somebody's serious about it, then they would uh, get on Twitter because Twitter is a platform that uh, scholars and um, journalists use to spread information. So it's about finding these people that you think provide trustworthy and good analysis and following them mm-hmm. and over time building up um, that resource. Okay. So whenever they send something, then you see it. Uh, the other thing that I would suggest is... Um, to visit some of the good blogs that exist on these topics. So Lowy Institute, Lowy Interpreter is yeah. is quite good. Okay. Um, so that deals with uh, international, a range of international issues. Um, and the blog pieces are not overly overly long. Mm-hmm. Um, ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, also has a blog called The Strategist. Yep. Um, and I've just had a piece published by them um, today on the uh, Chinese military's 91st birthday. Okay. Um, but that's, um, yeah, that's another good source if for anybody that's interested in that space. Yeah, I definitely recommend those two. I think we spoke before. I've been wanting to have someone from um, ASPE come down for a while. Um, and we're talking to the Lowy Institute as well. So I think... Those two around geopolitical foreign policy relations and leadership is a really good place to start. Are there any particular leaders or individuals that you'd like following in this area, maybe within Australia or America? I'm thinking about um, Twitter profiles in particular that have been quite interesting. Oh, yeah, there's heaps of them. But now (laughs) that you ask me, it's just like, oh, yeah. Um, That's all right. We can always link afterwards. Yeah, it's it's just off top of my head. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm sure there's there's plenty of them. I think if they're fo- following Lowy Institute and Aspie as well, um, yeah, it's probably that a would... good good place to start, and you're going to find people from there. Absolutely. I mean, if um, if you're interested in um, China and Australia's relationship with China, Richard McGregor from the Lowy Institute. That's right. Um, uh, is a highly uh, credible and knowledgeable source. Is that it was Richard McGregor? McGregor, right? yeah, yeah. And Richard wrote a book that I um, read very early on in my career called The Party, and it's a very readable book, uh, readable book about the Communist Party and how it operates. And each chapter has um, a small story that tells that reveals an aspect of the party. Interesting. Um, so I'd highly recommend that as basically the introductory text if you want to know more about the uh, operations of the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, so that was The Party by Richard McGregor. Yeah, that's right. All right. Um, Let's jump into some short, sharp questions for you. Sure. Um, Morning. What does your morning ritual look like when you're not flying down to Melbourne? Uh, if it's not if it's not too cold, then uh, I I'll do some gardening, um, and then I'll um, I'll read my Twitter feed, okay. and usually I'll read like a dozen articles that's relevant uh, for me, and then tweet some of them if they um, if if I think they make sense uh, and are important. Mm-hmm. So that's primarily, and then you jump up, have breakfast, obviously. Do you are you in ANU's offices like every day of the week, or is a lot of your research? I'm not. So currently, I'm a visiting fellow. So I've okay. just finished a one-year uh, research uh, project on China's strategic forces, mm-hmm. and that's just finished. So uh, I'm currently a visiting fellow, and I'm, uh, I'm it's super flexible. So I just go in when 
basically yeah. i want or i um if i have a meeting okay uh, cool. then i'll go in um but yeah that's the, i think that's one uh one of the favorite things about my about my uh what i do and it's um i can be in different places do uh, whatever yeah yeah i can sit in a cafe or at the library and read and uh, write there you go yeah so i spend a lot of time thinking and that's what i do <laughs> um evening what does your evening ritual look like? How do you decompress at night? So I go to gym. That's one way okay. I decompress. And, and when it's not in the middle of Canberra Canberra's scary winter, then <laughs> I um, go to my garden. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And uh, most recently, there's uh, there's this cat. I think it's a straight cat uh, that comes to visit me every day in okay. the evening. So. It will meow at the door and just uh, come by. Yeah, just come by and uh, I'll let it in and then we'll just hang out. Like I'll be in my study doing stuff and then I'll just be in this chair, like sitting there. And it so, just comes along. Yeah, yes, yeah, so it's 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 came like every day uh, for a couple of weeks now. Really? So yeah, so I wouldn't be. I, I'm not gonna be there tonight. So that's <laughs> the thing. It'll be meowing and then. Wow, that's very interesting. Maybe you need to adopt it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm thinking uh, I should probably take it to the ISPCA when I get back. I'm just not so sure that it's a stray cat. Yeah. Because it has a micro dot in its ear, I think. Interesting. Yeah. So it's probably got a chip then. Yeah, I'm not too sure, but maybe I should get it to the ISPCA. Um, apart from the book you just mentioned, what's been the most influential book in this area? Are there any must have even if it's like a book that you've read in university that someone could utilize in this area yeah uh, i think one interesting thing is that my reading habit has dramatically changed over the last like say 10 years like before we read books but now it's about these short articles these shorter pieces and reports that you can read on your phone or your tablet interesting um maybe not exactly in this area but one book that i highly recommend is uh forbidden i think forbidden city by um jeremy barme uh who was a um, professor at dnu Okay. Who's a Chinese, uh, who's um, focused on Chinese history. Interesting. And it talks about um, the Forbidden City um, during the Qing Dynasty. And it's about the geography of power, of how, like, the architecture represents the power uh, and how that reflects how they thought about power. So, yeah, so it's really interesting. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not contemporary politics, but it takes you back to like the whole dynastic um dynastic times yeah i I find all that stuff fascinating i think um one of my favorite tv series of late and i'm really sad that they got rid of it was um marco polo okay i know it's like largely um like some elements are ridiculous but it talks about the, the Mongols and their invasion of China and right, the eventual, okay. conv- not conversion, but conjoining with um, uh, or removal of that dynasty in China. I can't remember if it was the Han dynasty. The Song dynasty. Song, yeah. yeah. Um, it's really interesting. And just how it, I guess, showcases the, the way that people lived in that era is really fascinating. It's just really sad that they got rid of it after two series. Um, last question for you. Uh, what's been the most insightful travel experience 
thus far? I think it was to India. So the first time I went to India, I was quite shocked by uh, the poverty and as well as the plurality of the religious beliefs there. Where uh, you know, well, yeah, they've got all the different religions. Though. Exactly, and how Hinduism is um, made out of of countless different sects and local gods and deities, and the food and smells. So um, the first few weeks in India were certainly um, mind blowing. Uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> mind blowing. I think that's a good. Um, word to describe it you know your senses are overloaded by all the spices and all the colors some of which you've never seen before and i guess you just realize that there's a world out there yeah and that we um we belong in it and that influences us and our actions have repercussions in the world um i like that yeah good um look adam this has been a pleasure thank you so much for coming in um a few things before people run off. Uh, where can they find you on the internet? Right. So uh, I have a profile on ANU's website. So if you're typing Adam Nee, that's an I and mm-hmm. uh, ANU, I think you'll probably you find, should be able to find me. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter at, um, at Adam underscore Nee. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, your listeners are welcome to send me an email. Um, so that's adam.nee at anu.edu.au. And yeah, it's certainly been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming. And look, um, for me, if, if people are interested in this, I think they should definitely go check out your Twitter profile. There's a lot of information you've got there. I think even just simply going to view the the PLA videos that they have is just worth it even if you were to simply view that because they're just hilarious and funny to watch no they are but um look thank you so much obviously coming down from canberra it's been uh a very quick whirlwind trip but thanks for making it down thanks for having me jordan it's a pleasure bye thank you for making it this far before you run off we have a quick ask for you Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. Or you could also share with a friend. This will go a long way in building our audience, which will help us both get further guests on the show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Neural, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. But until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media is an effortless and affordable content production service. We help businesses save time and money by taking away the pain of producing content. If you want to grow your audience through content production, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. Create a quote and request a callback from me personally. If you want to learn more about the benefits of growing your audience, download our free series on how to create content at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast receive a special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON.